Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi lever i de store bevægelsers tid. Bevægelser, som man troede var døde for nogle årtier siden, er pludselig kommet tilbage. Meget, meget store klimabevægelser, meget, meget store antiracistiske bevægelser, meget, meget store bevægelser imod seksuelt misbrug på arbejdspladsen, men også på højrefløjen meget, meget store bevægelser, der støtter Donald Trump, meget, meget store bevægelser, der ikke vil tro på alt det, som magthaverne siger. Så på den ene side, der har vi oplevet bevægelserne som en progressiv velsignelse, som noget, der bragt verden fremad og kunne presse vores ledere til det, som de politiske systemer ikke selv kunne. På den anden side må vi også erkende, at de her bevægelser er farlige, og man kan på en vis måde sige, at angrebet på kongressen 6. januar i år var en kulmination på bevægelsernes magt, fordi der gik de virkelig efter centrum i det amerikanske demokrati. Så vi har fået det her meget potente våben, som er de sociale bevægelser, som er i gang med at ændre verden, men vi ved faktisk ikke rigtigt, hvordan de fungerer og hvordan man sætter grænser for dem. For virkelig at få svar på det spørgsmål, og for at få en refleksion over dem, og for at lære noget af tidligere tiders bevægelser, har jeg i denne her uge talt med den amerikanske legende Marshall Gans. Marshall Gans var med til at lave de store civil rights demonstrationer og marcher i sydstaterne i 1960'erne i USA. Han var med til at organisere de latinamerikanske farm workers i Kalifornien i slutningen af 60'erne. Han var med til at lave Barack Obamas kampagne i 2008, som blev den helt store overraskelse ved det valg. Han har været med til at lave The Sunrise Movement, som er den amerikanske klimabevægelse. Marshall Gans har med andre ord mere end et halvt århundredes erfaring med at lave bevægelser. Han ved godt, hvordan man laver en stærk bevægelse. Han ved også godt, at de unge gerne vil, men at de ikke selv kender risici ved det. Og han forklarer det hele i den her samtale, jeg har med ham. God fornøjelse. Good afternoon and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. And especially, I guess it's good morning to you, Marshall Gans, who's with us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for taking your time. Uh, go after me there. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, thanks to some uh, uh, recent tutoring. Uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, have the opportunity to, to have this conversation. I've been looking forward to it uh, very much. Thanks. Me too, a, a lot. Because being a leader of a newspaper, you must talk about leadership and strategy. But I grew up with several decades of neoliberalism, where every time when people talk about leadership and strategy, You know, it's something with PowerPoint and how to make as much profit as possible. So I always hated that language. On the other hand, you must assume responsibility for the position that you're in. But then I read your work and I listened to some of your lectures and I really learned how leadership can be a function of democracy and how it can enhance and not obstruct democracy. And that was just such a, an inspiring experience for me. It's, it has meant a lot, actually. So I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it's gratifying to know uh, that your work actually has value. You, you're never quite sure, you know. Uh, so, no, I, I, I'm, I really appreciate that. It is, there are words that are given meaning in particular power structures that uh, is very problematic. And one of those words, leadership, I think, is something needs to be reclaimed uh, because it gets conflated with, uh, with authority. Um, and i guess one of my you know experiences was that people occupy positions of formal leadership may not be very good leaders um on the other and i think there's some recent examples in this country certainly of, of that <laughs> but but coming into this work through social movements there were people exercising leadership uh around kitchen tables uh in neighborhoods uh in workplaces and that really helped, I think, see, oh, no, this is a practice. It's not a position. This is a way of interacting with other people to accomplish a shared purpose. This isn't just about giving orders. That's something different. And sometimes they coincide, sometimes they don't. But that's sort of where that comes from. And I actually think we're in a very interesting moment right now over the last few years where social movements have come back Uh, 10 years ago, we didn't expect to have strong social movements in Denmark, but they've come back with the climate movement and a lot of inspiration from, from the U.S. But I also think I was born in the 70s that we're a couple of generations that didn't really learn about 
a lot about social movements that we we grew up li uh, listening to the stories from the 60s and seeing the movies from the 60s and in America, a lot about the civil rights movement. My kids all often say, we know more about the civil rights movement in America than we know about the workers' movement in, in Denmark. But I think we need some lessons from that, from that period. And I think there's a lot of inspirations from Bernie Sanders and, and other figures that, that are quite influential now. And that was also the formative years for you as, as, an, as an organizer, being part of a mm -hmm. social movement. So I want to ask you first about this summer in 1964, where you said you got your calling in, in yeah. Mississippi. No, I, I yes, it's true. I, I mean, um, my real education about race, power, and politics in America uh, was not here at Harvard, uh, where I was a junior. It began in Mississippi, with all due respect to Harvard, uh, <laughs> because it, it, the reality is there. You know, I often think about this this moment the night before we went to Mississippi. We were being trained in Oxford, Ohio, at a college. There were about 300 of us there, uh, mostly um, you know students and young people, because the the theory of the summer project was that uh, African American organizers in Mississippi were trying to organize, but the law didn't protect them. They would get beaten, put in jail, or worse. And so the theory was, okay, let's try to bring people who might bring the law with them. And maybe in that way, we can support their work. And so that's why white students from the North, as well as black students, were recruited uh, to do this. And we were there to organize something called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which was a non-racist alternative to the regular Democrats. And we were going to go to Democratic Convention and try to get them thrown out. But we, it was the night before it was time to go to Mississippi. And we got word that three of our party had disappeared, um, Andrew Goodman, Michael Swerner, and James Cheney. They had uh, gone down a few days earlier to investigate the burning of a black church in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where there'd been civil rights activity and they hadn't been heard from since. And uh, Bob Moses, who was the leader, uh, the lead organizer, appropriately named the lead organizer, um, is a very soft-spoken guy, he gets up on the stage uh, and he says, um, we heard what happened to our brothers. We don't know what happened, but we think they're gone. And sure enough, two months later, their bullet-riddled, beaten bodies were found buried in a dirt levee where the Klan had, had buried them after executing them when the county sheriff had turned them over to the Klan for that purpose. Now, we didn't know that, but we kind of knew that. And so Bob said, look, uh, I'd like to tell just go home. You don't have, but I can't. I have to ask you to go. But I can't take the whole responsibility. Uh, each of you needs to decide. And if you can't go, it's no shame. Now, see, that moment was for me a really telling moment because it forced me to look and ask myself, why are you doing this? What? And everybody, same, there was just complete silence in the room. And, and so it recalled, uh, you know, we lived in Germany for three years after the Second World War. My father was a rabbi who was a chaplain in the American army. Most of his work was with Holocaust survivors. My fifth birthday party was in a camp, uh, DP camp uh, of all children, which at first I thought was cool until I understood why it was only children. The parents were gone. So the Holocaust was a reality in our home, but it was interpreted to me as being not so much about anti-Semitism as about racism, that racism kills. And that's what we were fighting was the institutionalized racism been part of my country since before its founding. And I don't know if there's preacher's kids, as a rabbi's kid, you have to go to everything. You're also supposed to be perfect, which is a different set of issues. But uh, I love the Passover Seder, the, the telling of that Exodus story with food, which was cool. But they would point to the children and say, you were slaves in Egypt. So I've never been to Egypt, never been a slave. Oh, no. What it meant was that that story wasn't the property of one people or one time or one place. It's told generation after generation. You kind of, you got to figure out, are you with the guys with the chariots and the horses? Are you with those people trying to find their way to a land of promise? And Dr. King interpreted the movement as uh, another chapter in the Exodus story. And I was 20 at the time. And others were 18, 19, 21. Dr. King, when he led the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, was 25. It was a young person's movement. And, and Walter Brueggemann, who's a Protestant theologian, wrote a book called The Prophetic Imagination. 
where he says that transformational vision occurs at the intersection of what he calls criticality, a clear view of the world's pain, of its hurt, of its need, coupled with hope, a sense of its promise and possibility. One without the other leads to despair or irrelevance, but together they can be a powerful source of transformation. And young people come of age with a critical eye on the world. They find it almost of necessity, hopeful hearts. And so as we're sitting there, you know, reflecting on these, uh, and that's how it was for my generation. I think it is again for this generation. I think that's a wonderful development. We're sitting there and a young woman named Jean Wheeler stands up in the back and she begins to sing. And she sings, they say that freedom is a constant struggle. They say freedom is a constant struggle. Oh Lord, we've struggled so long, we must be free. They say freedom is a constant dying. We've died too long, we must be free. And as she stood up and began to walk out of the room, everybody filed in behind her. And the next day, everybody went to Mississippi. So that was really the beginning of an understanding of my calling and its sources, but also of how the world is, <laughs> you know, of, of race, power, politics, and how it really, really works. So that's what set me on this path. Looking back at the 60s, I often... I often think that it seems that there were very strong spiritual roots to the civil rights movement that we don't see to the same extent today, that that the churches were places of, of gathering and that there was, you mentioned yourself, you, you, your own father, rabbi, and, this, and this, this Jewish story. What role did religion and the spiritual roots play in, in inspiring and giving people the hope? You know, I think it's just, important to be clear that these movements, they involve head, they involve heart, and they involve hands. And if you think of the head part, the strategic part, and then there's the action part, the hands. But without the heart, there's no motivation, there's no courage, there's no hope, there's no solidarity. And so if you look back through almost any social movement, there's a heart dimension of it. Now, it may be in the context of formal religious uh, tradition. I mean, certainly the Reformation was a big social movement. It's one way, I mean, for sure. So this idea of movement has often occurred in religious contexts because that's for many years where people went for heart. It's where they went for solidarity, for sources of hope, for dealing with loss and all the rest of it. So yeah, there is a deep affinity now, but then it also, you know, if you look at secular social movements and the ones that really thrive, you'll find this work being done in one way or another. It may be Avanti Popolo instead of a church song, uh, but it's a song because uh, movements sing. Uh, and because, because singing is a form of emotional coordination. It's a way of speaking the language of emotion with others and sharing that, that sense of solidarity. So faith traditions have had a deep connection uh, in, in movements. Because people, people don't take risks that are involved in movements and without some source of real courage and, and, and faith in one another. And the other thing about social movements is that they are not just about changing laws. They're about changing ourselves. They're about discovering within us the sources of value, the sources of hope. And, you know, that was so clear in Mississippi, where a person who'd been beaten down by that horrible system there would find the courage to say, you know what, uh, I'm done with that. I'm gonna go try to, I'm gonna go register to vote. Powerful stuff. That's not just a change in a law. It's a change in the people who can build the power to change the law. And so social movements operate on individual, communal and institutional level. And in a way that's kind of the appeal. That was the appeal for me, certainly, because it wasn't just like, here, just fix the stop sign. And it wasn't just, oh, go to Washington and try to get a law passed. It was locating the source of change in the people who needed the change. And so it was empowering not only through legal means, it was empowering directly to the individuals and the communities that were involved. And that was really, really appealing. And so, yes, I mean, I, I show up in Mississippi. I'm this white Jewish guy from Harvard. A lot of my red diaper baby friends did not get what's going on in the church. Boy, I got it. I'm, I'm grateful for that religious background because the church, that's where it was happening in the civil rights movement. 
you know, this church songs became civil rights songs. You know, religious leaders became movement leaders. Um, it was the place where people cultivated both, not just their heart skills, but their skills of self-governance, their skills of decision-making, of leadership. That was that. When I began work with the farm workers in California, 1966, I found myself, now I was in a world in which was Mexican Catholic tradition, uh, Catholic social tradition. It was right after um, uh, Vatican II. There was a period of incredible creativity and generativity within the church at that time. And so the foundation of the farm worker movement was, you know, as much rerum novarum or quadragesimo anno as anything else. Uh, but it was also folk based. It was sometimes people uh, loved the faith, but hated the church. Uh, <laughs> and so, so there was a lot of that, you know, now in the farm worker movement, though, it, it was um, the majority were Mexican immigrants, but we had Yemenis, Punjabis, Filipinos. We had a wide, widely diverse culturally and religiously. The, the first funeral in California for someone killed on a farm worker picket line 19, in 1973 uh, was uh, for a young man named Nashi Daifula who came from Yemen with others to work in the grapes. He was beaten to death by a Kern County deputy sheriff. The first funeral was a Muslim funeral attended by 10,000 Mexicans. So the, the richness of faith, is a, it's a real deal. And the secularization of everything leaves us, it's not like, oh, let's all go back and, but it leaves us kind of a little bereft. Like, where do we get that kind of moral energy? Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why this public narrative stuff has appeal, because it's an effort to sort of what Charles Taylor, the moral philosopher, called learning to articulate your moral sources. It's not philosophy, it's experience. It's recalling those moments, those experiences in which you learned to care, in which you found hope. And boy, people are really have a hunger for that. And I think there must have been another quality to the spiritual foundation of the movement or the spiritual affinities and and the way that it takes place around church is that you would have some sort of grounding in outside of academia, outside of progressive, outside of students, that there's kind of a class compromise in it, that this is a movement appealing to people living in small cities, listening to the preachers every Sunday, which I think is kind of harder to establish today, that kind of cultural denominator where, where you often see progressive movements today and I'm not blaming them because this is a part of a long cultural history they would be uh, they would be uh, divided they, they would and sometimes even generate opposition from the people that they would claim to speak on behalf of because they they didn't have this uh, this this common church so, so I was thinking how do you see now we have these strong movements today that are very inspiring and and here in Europe, we're, I'm very impressed by the climate movement. It's been so successful. Yeah. How, how do you see the potential for finding a, a, a cultural common denominator or a spiritual denominator that would be equivalent to what the church did for Martin Luther King in the 60s? I think that's where, I think that's one of the points of real creative challenge. You know, because uh, uh, I'm doing some work with Sunrise Movement here. And Sunrise is, as you know, uh, youth movement, uh, people who care passionately about their futures. Before that, we did some work with the, um, the March for Our Lives, uh, the Parkland, after the Parkland uh, murders uh, there. And, you know, there's all this youth energy, which I can, <laughs> it just reminds me so much of what was energizing us. And, you know, if you actually look at the movement beyond the civil rights movement, you look at the anti-war movement or look at the women's movement, there was a, a, a moral grounding, but it wasn't particularly religious. It, it, it involved, certainly there were people there for those reasons and so forth, but there was a struggling toward, toward how to articulate, how to put into words or how to put into song what it is that we're really all about. And, you know, there is a, a, an important class dimension to this too. I, I, 
it's very easy for activists and intellectuals to get into a conversation using language that no one in the world understands except academics and activists. Now, if, if it's going to be a broad movement, it has to be in language. And I think that was your point earlier. It has to be in language that, that is widely understood. I think one of the reasons Biden has surprised us all <laughs> is that he knows how to speak human. You know, <laughs> he knows how to speak human. And, and yeah, at these really core levels, you know, that's where public narrative is so helpful because it's also about sources of being human. Uh, it's about caring. It's about uh, parents and their kids. It's about betrayal and not betrayal. It's about very basic stuff. And so the challenge that you're raising, I think, is a really serious one. And I don't know who's got the answer. I see people groping towards this. You know, the, the, the students come up with their own sort of rituals because we always create rituals around, mm -hmm. you know, where, where, where there's uncertainty involved and where there's risk. We create rituals, ways of managing that uh, and, and communal which rituals. You could look, Occupy, you could look at that whole way they ran meetings as a ritual. Uh, from the perspective of strategy, was it efficient? Uh-uh. <laughs> uh, so you had to under so because movements have both they have an expressive dimension and they have a strategic dimension to the extent that it is about people asserting new understandings of themselves and the world around them there's an expressive there, there's just you're going to hear me you didn't hear me before here i am that's one part but then the other is wait a second how does this build power how does this influence, how do, how do we get the economic and political power to actually change the structures that have put us in this place in the first place? And Occupy did the expressive part very well, but very limited when it came to the strategic part. And so how you marry those two, I think, is one of the real challenges. And I know students I work with now, it's expressive. Strategy tends to be much more, um, how can I say, um, emergent, uh, the structures to actually decide, make decisions, coordinate, they're struggling with that a lot. And that's the project we're doing with Sunrise right now is how to help them restructure themselves so that they can be proactive and not reactive and that they can, they can develop leadership much more systematically. Uh, it's not a criticism of their movement at all. It's like trying to take it beyond the expressive to the strategic. You, you write somewhere that in the 60s and 70s, social movements were helping America realize its democratic promise, that, they, that there was something promised to people that was not fulfilled by, by realities, which is a very, very strong way of mobilizing, saying, well, we were promised that we could all be free and yet we are suppressed, or we were promised that we could support ourselves And yet, because we are women, we are not. So for these couple of decades, you had social movements that generated real change. They also created some conflicts, but I, I have the sense still that they that a new consensus emerged on the other side of it. And, and it seems that there was a period that was a good environment for social movements uh, in the 60s and, and, and 70s. Do you see that, that we have a great political environment now for, for social, social movements as well? Well, I, th I think social movements are generated out of dissonance. In other words, that there is, a, there is a conflict between how I experience the world and how I believe the world should be experienced. In other words, things get really awful. That's not right. You know, Uh, there's an interesting tradition called moral uh, moral economy where they studied the uh, peasant revolts in the in the middle ages in, in Europe and they said well why these revolts and not at other times yes, it yes. seems there was sort of an acceptable standard of inequality that was okay but when that was transcended it was crossing a line and it became unjust that's when you got resistance that's when you got it was like it was like such an affront to dignity uh to one sense of oneself. You have to, you have to push back. And, and so there is this dissonance, I think. Now, the dissonance can come from two directions. It can come from things getting worse, 
or it can come from people thinking they deserve more. And, and you know, it's interesting because we tend to focus so much on grievance that we miss the point about value and about hopefulness. You know, the, the American Civil Rights Movement, if you look at it, you know, people have been resisting for a long time. In the 50s, several things happened. There were African-American veterans returning home from the war, whether they'd fought for and being told, hey, go back, you, you're nobody, or you're less than nobody. It was the first generation of, of black uh, college youth coming of age uh, from universities that said, I don't want to be what my parents had. That was the backbone of the sit-in movement, uh, those folks. Uh, there was um, the, the problem, uh, it, it, this may sound strange, but the U.S. was in a competition with Soviet Union. Uh, and it was very, very hard for the U.S. to say, hey, democracy is wonderful when it was a racist democracy, which it still remains in many ways. But then it was so clear. So there were a convergence of a generational change uh, of, uh, of uh, you know, the change in life circumstances. African-American migration during uh, the 30s and 40s to New York, uh, Chicago, Los Angeles meant that those communities were electing people to Congress. So there was a political voice that didn't exist before. So you can look at these things and say, oh, there's all this dissonance popping up. And it's a dissonance both, again, in terms of value uh, and also in terms of institutions. So I think that's, you know, with the war in Vietnam, I mean, you know, I was part of the civil rights deal and we went to Atlantic City in 1964. Uh, Johnson uh, was renominated, you know, nominated to be president. He got an overwhelming election. He was the peace candidate. He was the peace candidate. And then Rolling Thunder began. And then everybody started being called up. And of course, it was, you know, if you could stay in college, you could kind of avoid that. Uh, but everybody was confronted with a choice. All, all young men had to say, yes, I will go. No, I won't go. I'm going to find a way not to go. Talk about radicalizing a generation. That's exactly what that did. So we had the civil rights movement as this sort of uh, model from which to learn. Uh, and, then, and then here it is. Everybody gets confronted with this choice everybody's got to make about live, life or death. Uh, the student movement starts around the same time. My roommate in Mississippi was Mario Savio, who started the free speech movement at Berkeley. Uh, and the interesting thing is that he had a terrible stutter. And he was really a very philosophical kind of Catholic guy from New York. He goes to Berkeley. He's supporting civil rights. They shut down his, his table. He becomes the spokesman of this free speech movement and loses his stutter he actually, it frees his speech as well as the speech of others. So you can see all these points of dissonance, uh, but value is being raised. It's not just things are getting worse. People want more, people deserve more. So I think it's sort of look at that dynamic and say, and I think generally in the, in the 60s, I think it was more hopeful. Yes. It was more hopeful because as you said, and I think it's very well said, um, no, this is who we claim to be. So, hey, isn't it time? Dr. King's March on Washington uh, talk in 1963, the people call it the I have a dream talk. It wasn't. It was called the fierce urgency of now talk. That's really what it was. Because before he talks about the dream, he talks about the nightmare. Uh, and it's the contrast between the nightmare and the dream that is creates the tension that, that energizes. But he talked about uh, America had, uh, uh, what was it? had given a check uh, to, uh, it's a metaphor about giving a check. And then when the black community came to cash it, it was found insufficient funds. And so this is about <laughs> making good on this debt that was owed. It's kind of, so yeah, I think, but you know, if you look at the French Revolution, right? Yeah. French, what was the French, you know, hey, we're recreating the Roman Republic, you know? Uh, we go all the way back to Rome. Uh, and that's our model for what this is that we're doing. Uh, and so it's just, and we don't like the church very much at all because the church is on the other side. <laughs> so there's a fabrication of a whole new narrative uh, about uh, a civic narrative as opposed to a religious narrative. 
And, and that's authentic. I mean, that starts with the Greeks. They figure out that they can govern themselves. There's a civic tradition. There's a faith tradition. There's also the popular tradition of people just figuring out how to defend themselves. The labor movement is certainly related to that. You know where the word boycott comes from? I've read it. I know it from you, but please explain it to, <laughs> to those who don't know it. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful anecdote. Well, it's, it's the creativity people have to figure out how they can turn what they have into what they need to generate enough power. So it takes place in Ireland uh, in the 19th century, actually, and uh, there's or 18th century, and there's a British landlord. Of course, the Brits had Ireland that way then. There were Irish tenant farmers, and the deal was that they had to uh, share um, a, you know, their produce with their landlord in return for the landlord making repairs and all that. Well, he wasn't doing it. And they asked, and nothing happened. So then they said, okay, you know what? We're just not going to give our share, our share. And it took about six months, but then he made the repairs. And his name was Captain Boycott. And so this is where we get Boycott, uh, the oppressor's name that we now use as a source of liberation. It's kind of, it's kind of ironic and perhaps appropriate. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful story, actually. I often think today that about the relation of the social movements to the governing institutions. That if if you look at the climate movement, they are or we are depending on strong and efficient and accountable institutions. You cannot reach our goals for the, for the Paris Treaty without institutions that are able to act and that are efficient. So you protest against them and you hold them accountable without weakening them too much. And, and I think that's a, how do you, how do you do, do you know where I'm going? That, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that you need to be impatient because the planet is burning, but you must also be patient because you must, you must wait for the institutions to be strong enough. And this is something that I wonder all the time, are we, Uh, are we weakening the institutions that we really need to work with in order to solve this historical problem? Or are we actually giving them legitimacy and pressuring them to be as strong as society needs them, them to be? I'm very curious about your reflections yeah. on this question. No, I think it's, I think it's a great question. Perhaps, perhaps one way to think about it is that it's a process of renewal or a process of regeneration. Because, you know, there's this core tension between uh, change and continuity, right? We want continuity so that things are predictable. But we also need change because the world changes. We change and we need to be adaptive. And there's, an, there's a tension there. And, you know, it's Robert Michels, you know, back in uh, 1911, who writes political parties about the German Social Democratic Party, who says, hey, it starts out this way, but yeah, it gets established. And so... Now the people, the people, the staff are more concerned about their continuity than serving the mission of their constituents. I mean, th there's a dynamic here, and I think that the the question is how do you how do you find the balance? And I think that's because if there isn't pressure for change now in the U.S., we have particular circumstances that our electoral system is fundamentally fundamentally anti-democratic. Uh, the Senate has, there is no democratic rationale about why somebody in Rhode Island should have two votes and why somebody in California is the same. The worth of a Rhode Island person for the Senate, uh, their vote is worth so much more than somebody in California, you know, with 18 million people, or I guess now it's more like 28 million people, they still get two votes in the Senate. Now, what's democratic about that? You know, and it's a legacy of trying to balance the, the greater population of the North with the slave population of the South. And so it created this three-fifths rule where slaves counted three-fifths of a person, but the white people got to do all the voting. And so that was kind of the a, a deal struck. And so we're burdened with that. It's crazy. The Senate, uh, first by the post districts, um, you get 51% of the representation, or you get nothing. 49% gets nothing. 51% gets everything. Everything's forced into these binaries. So if you don't have a chance of 51%, what's the point of participating? You know, electoral college marginalizes participation in most of our major states. So we have these, 
And the presidential system itself is problematic, as almost every country who's tried to do it has found out, <laughs> because it divides legislation and implementation. The reason I'm saying this is that for this reason, social movements have played a critical part in American politics ever since the very beginning. I mean, the temperance movements, the abolition movement, the agrarian movement, the populist, the original populist movement, uh, the uh, uh, again, the suffrage movements, the civil rights movement, uh, the labor movement, the because the reality was that unless you found a way to build power outside, you weren't going, it wasn't going to come from inside. But what that meant was then you had to engage with inside and transform it. And sometimes uh, a colleague has written this wonderful book called When Movements Anchor Parties that shows the interaction between movements and parties here in American history, where either they take over the party uh, or the party takes them over uh, or, uh, or there's something in between. Uh, and so that's a dynamic of change and continuity. And so I think the point you're raising is critical. One of the frustrating things here is that people will mobilize and organize like we did for Obama and get a real movement thing going. And then you, but then the, those whom we elect decide that enough of that, that was good for the campaign. Now I'm going, I was into sort of maximizing support. Now I'm into minimizing opposition. And that's what happened with Obama. That was the shift. And so the frustration of the absence of from here of institutions strong enough to actually hold the political process accountable, civil society organizations, trade unions that can assert. So you really then do have a dynamic of change and continuity. Democracy promises that, you know, through elections, that there, there's a mechanism for change in an orderly way. And that's the deal. Well, but when the system is so skewed that the people with the greatest interest in change, young people, people of color, are marginalized in the representation system, then you got what we got here now, which is a legitimacy crisis. It really is. We, we have a, a minority uh, that, has, that really sees control of the government. Uh, this was never about conservative liberal. It was about democracy, not democracy. And, and uh, it it's really has to be understood in those terms. And so, yeah, so we're, we're getting our, our experience of what it looks to have like a, a right-wing anti-democratic, might call it fascist, but certainly anti-democratic assault on democratic institutions. And all the laws are trying to pass now to restrict voting across this country, 27 states. That's, that's about that. It's about suppressing the democracy. So I guess, I guess what I'm saying is the <laughs> dynamic is really there and it's not going to go away. The, press, the question is, how do, you, how do you keep it vital? How are there, is there enough power in the forces of change that it doesn't get overwhelmed by the forces of continuity? But is there enough continuity that you're not reinventing your organization every day and you can't decide anything because you don't even know how you're going to decide things? So you know, when the Greeks say nothing to excess, they weren't talking about moderation. They were talking about the tension that exists between poles. And they it, it's sort of like if you go all this way, you got a problem. If you go all that way, you got a problem. The reality is how do you hold the tension? That's kind of where the creativity is. That's where the dynamic, that's where the opportunities are. And the Greeks were never moderate about very much. Uh, they were very passionate. Uh, but they had ways they were struggling with trying to hold the tension. I think that's a, because that is another thing that can be very difficult with social movements today is that you want to be morally maximalist because that's what gets people mobilized. But it's also a dangerous place to be okay. because if the maximalist position is the only place you are, there is no room for compromise. And then you might end up enforcing the polarization that is damaging the institutions that you really need. I have another another question because we only just, have- I'm sorry, just one comment on that. Sure, Saul, sure. Saul Linsky, the community organizer, he used to say that that uh, organizers need to uh, be, um, what did he call it? Um, organized schizophrenia, because he says that, that you have to mobile, polarize to mobilize, but you always have to depolarize to settle. 
And, and initially you're focused on building the power, but then when you're in a place where you got enough power that you can deal, then you often have to work with your own people to recognize what's possible. And it makes social movement leadership really challenging, really challenging. Uh, and I don't think people kind of get that. It's, it's, but it's, it's what you're pointing to. I mean, yeah, because you can, and, and the other thing, if you don't have a constituency other than other activists and other academics and activists, you are much more likely to go into the ideological world of purism. But if you have people whose lives you're responsible for because you, they elected you or because you're a union representative, it's a different story. And it gives you more balance. It gives you more like, yeah, more balance, I guess, is the word. Real people, real lives are at stake in these things. It isn't just a matter of what idea is the purest idea. I think that's a very, very important lesson and something that is rarely talked about because it's it's the other side of enthusiasm, the other side of mobilization and the, the other side of, of what you could call the moral free ride that is the beginning, that, that you just that you're just singing your songs. And, but but that is such an important lesson that you must be able to cultivate your own enthusiasm in order to that it doesn't become destructive. Well, one, one last question for you, something that I've also struggled a lot to find out and I've been looking forward to asking you. When you have strong movements, like we have the labor movement in Denmark, when you hear the stories about the labor movement back in the day, you think, well, that, that was such a great movement. I wanted to be part of it. Yeah. And, th- and then when today you hear Bernie Sanders talking about the unions, you say, whoa, what a great, great, great history. We want to be part of that. And I think we are enthused in Denmark to see Joe Biden actually taking the sides of the workers against Amazon in Alabama. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it feels intellectually liberating that he, he says, well, please organize. Unions are, are, yeah. are important. But the funny thing is that the same young people here in Denmark who love it when Bernie Sanders, he talks about unions right. and who are very inspired by Black Lives Matter and very inspired by Fridays for Future. Actually, the climate movement is more of our own, but the Me Too yeah. movement and, and the anti-racist movement, they don't care about our unions here. They are leaving the units because they have become institutions. You know, they're not part of creating the movements. They're not part of any renewal. So if we didn't have movements here, if we didn't have strong unions and Bernie Sanders was saying, go create unions, they would be part of it. But we're, we're losing members every year. So the basis for this very strong compromise between democracy and capital is actually being eroded here. So, so my question is, how do you revitalize these institutions? How do you renew them so, so, so they can make them their own and not just something they inherit? Well, okay, when we figure that out, <laughs> we'll write a book about it and get rich. No, I mean, I mean, you know, Thomas Piketty in his most recent book, The, the Ideology and, uh, and Capital, does a wonderful job, I think, of characterizing, he characterized the book, he calls it the Brahmin left. Yes. You know, based on education, all the rest of it. Uh, and then he calls the merchant right. Uh, and then the contest is over working people, over, and the abandonment of any sort of egalitarian agenda, certainly in this country, uh, in beginning in the 70s, by the nominally progressive side, Democratic Party, I mean, Bill Clinton was just the epitome of that. No, there's no more egalitarian responsibility. We're we're all over here into into neoliberalism. The market's going to solve everything. Well, it then creates the 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 constituency for Trump. It, it creates the constituency around identity and around nationalism because of the abandonment of quote progressives of egalitarian commitments. And I think the question you're pointing to is spot on. You know, and, and it's so vivid here. 20, 70, what is it now? 76 million people voted for Trump in this country. Boy, that's a wake up call. It, I mean, it's more than a wake up call. It's more like a last minute, uh, hey, it's, it's terrible. And, and it has to be recognized. That requires 
actually re-engaging with people in real ways and not treating them as just the consequences of globalization. Now, that's a moral challenge. It's a political challenge. It's a generational challenge. Um, and it's interesting, in this country, there's more energy in labor from new immigrants, especially. And, and sort of the new immigrant world uh, is much more ready to challenge when it comes to working conditions and all the rest of it. Uh, this whole thing in Alabama with the African-American community was a terrible, the organizing was terrible. It's like, I guess, I know, I know we're running out of time, but it's kind of like unions forget how to organize. Uh, you know, the leaders that developed the organizations were evangelists. Then the bishops take over. And once you've got bishops instead of missionaries or evangelists, you have a very different energy. Now, it's a smart organization that figures out, hey, we're going to become irrelevant if we don't find ways to cultivate our evangelists, to cultivate our, our, our capacity to challenge and not just go along to get along. That's really challenging. It's a challenge to the labor movement. Often it's come from the outside, not the inside. Uh, you know, in, in, in 1930s in the U.S., a lot of the impetus came for a renewal labor movement, came from a combination of uh, interesting people like uh, mine workers uh, and others and communists. You know, we're out there to fight the fight and renew the, renew the whole thing. So it's very hard to say, you know, I love what I'm doing. I think it's really great. We've contributed a whole lot. We need to change. That last line is the hard one. And so then the question is how, how the constituencies with an interest in change, young people in particular, often it's people who are most marginalized, often it's people who have no meaning in their work. Uh, you know, that's kind of where the energy has to come from here, at least internally. And I'm speaking in the American context, and I don't, I don't claim to be an expert, but some of this stuff is resonant, I think, across... Uh, certainly across the wealthy countries. I mean, in the rest of the world, there's a whole other set of things going on, like the horror show in Gaza today, which is just a, a tragedy, just a sin. So, yeah, the challenges aren't going to go away. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, you're naming what are the challenges with it. Yes, I know. I know. So, so, you know, so we can talk about them. But yeah. my, my experience is, is the only way you learn to solve these is you, you get into it and you try. And that's what I admire about the young people who are getting into it, who are, who are trying. You don't have all the, how can you, you know, we can't know the future. So there's always risk involved. But, you know, sometimes when you're youthful, you're more ready to take risk uh, than when you're in a different stage of life. Although there's an, uh, there's an interesting alliance between the, the Bernie Sanderses and the young people. Yes. Do you notice that? It's kind yes. of like, it's, it's very, I, I, I'm sort of in that category. I mean, there's a, there's a uh, it sort of skips the middle generation or something uh, where you have less stake in the status quo uh, and you can see possibility or you could see your dreams that you didn't achieve, but maybe others can. So I know there's, a, there's something there that's also really worth paying attention to. And I think that is so very important that the young people today, they need also to feel part of a history that actually achieved progress, yes. that did something they were afraid of, that took certain risks, that went to Mississippi when they were 20 years old and they didn't know what happened. And I think that's this you need to be part of a history of moral progress. And I think that is, that is the significance of Bernie Sanders. That, you know, I, I've seen him with my 16-year-old son a couple of times, and he loves him. And yep. I, I don't hear him saying anything that I find interesting. But I think it's just, he's like, you know, the Moses. He, he's, he's like the, the father who went ahead of people and tell them which way to go and who didn't lose his moral optimism or his faith or, or anything. And I think that that is just the inspiration and the importance of the 60s today. Yeah, I think that, the, the, the yes. I, I think if you look at what's the appeal of Bernie, what was the appeal of Harry Dean? What was, yeah. it was like courage was a big deal. 
you know, just calling it what it is, not, not the bullshit, you know, it's like authenticity and courage. You know, if you look at who won elections in the midterms here, uh, a lot of the people, it, it's sort of, you're looking, what's the common denominators? Were they moderate? Were they whatever? A lot of the common denominators were this question of courage and authenticity was like, oh, this is a real person. This is a person who what you see is what you get. And they've got the courage to call it out, to say the emperor has no clothes. Uh, that's very appealing at a time when everybody's doing just the opposite. You know, when we're trying to pretend that markets will solve all our problems, we don't need democracy anymore because markets will solve our problems. And, you know, so that's a lot of the appeal. Now, see, that's on us, I think. Yes. All of us, you know, because telling war stories, see, if they're war stories, it's just, hmm. but if they're parables, if they're examples, that's really different. And I think for young people to hear the history in the way they need to hear it, it has to be in a context of courage. It has to be in that kind of a context. And, uh, and we, need to, we need that narrative. And I think you contributed a lot to that. It was such a great pleasure talking to you. And I store some questions for you that I've been going around with for, for weeks. And sorry, friends, asking all those difficult questions. But thank you so much for taking your time, Marshall Gaines. I hope we have a chance to meet and talk later in the future. Thank you so much. I hope so, too. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful conversation. Really, there's always learning in a conversation like this for both. And I learned a lot from it. So thank you. Det var så min samtale med Marshall Gans, og hvis nogen gerne vil opleve mere af det, Gans taler om, så kan jeg sige, at den episode, han nævner i starten, hvor han tager til Mississippi, det er faktisk den, der er blevet filmatiseret i filmen Mississippi Burning. Så hvis man gerne vil opleve Gans på film, så skal man bare se Mississippi Burning. I næste uge, der skal vi et helt andet sted hen. Der skal vi prøve noget, jeg glæder mig til i utrolig lang tid. Der skal vi tale med den amerikanske professor Carl Hart, som siger følgende. Når det er sådan, at der i alle vestlige samfund er rigtig mange, der bruger stoffer, hvorfor er det så, at vi ikke bare stiller spørgsmålet om, hvordan gør vi det nemt, hvordan gør vi det sikkert, og hvordan gør vi det forsvarligt at tage stoffer? Hvordan kan det være, at vi bliver ved med at føre kamp mod noget, som tiende del af vores befolkning gør, uden overhovedet at tage højde for, at vi aldrig slipper af med det? Man kan også sige det på den her måde. Hvis du kender en, der er alkoholiker, så er det vedkommende selv, der er problemet, og ikke alkoholen. Hvis du kender en, der er narkoman, så er det narkotikan, der er problemet, og ikke narkomanen. Hvorfor er det sådan, og hvordan kan vi komme videre derfra? Og er det på tide, at vi laver en bevægelse, som kræver alle stoffer frisat og legaliseret? Det taler jeg med Karl Hart om i næste uge. Tusind tak for nu. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg.